In this episode of So Dramatic, my guest is coach and educator Jim Clark. Jim and I talk about the author C.S. Lewis. We discuss Lewis's kind spirit and generosity, his wife Joy and her often overlooked background, and Jim reveals his traumatic experience with Chronicles of Narnia. Jim Clark, thank you for doing this. You're Thanks awesome. I'm so glad that you're here. And I do have to tell you this, though. I, you know, you and I have great conversations about lots of things, music, literature, all kinds of things. So I knew I wanted to have you on my show. And I probably started at least working on four different topics before I got to one that worked. So I would start to research one and I'd go, no, no. And I'd start to research another one. I go, no, no. And so I finally hit on it. So I'm very excited. But first, let me give my spiel about this. So this is a podcast about creative people and their baggage. And I invite a new guest each episode and tell them a story about an artist, a musician, a writer, etc. They don't know who I'm going to talk to them about, but I choose someone I know they will have an interest in and will lead to a great conversation for all the world to hear. All right. Okay, Jim, have you thought at all about this? I know I kind of sprung this on you, but did you think I, at all I have, about I have, but, I, but I'm not, I, I'm going to be surprised okay. um, <laughs> because I, I agree. We've, we've talked music, we've talked books. Um, I, I, I'm not sure where we're going. So. And what I, I love about you is like, you will, we'll have a conversation. Then the next thing I know, there's a book in my mailbox. <laughs> <laughs> I try. I love it. It's like, I love oh, he listened. Yeah. So <laughs> he actually sure. listened to me. I need friends. I need more friends like you who pay attention to what I'm saying. Um, okay. So our topic is going to be C.S. Lewis. Okay. Do you know anything about C.S. Lewis? Yeah, I know a bit. Okay, I mean, good. That's what I yeah. like. A, a bit. Yeah. I just need a bit. Yeah. Um, so my sources, I, you know, we're English teachers, so I got to give my sources, right? So there's a official C.S. Lewis website, biography.com, C.S. Lewis Foundation, and then a book by Abigail Santamaria called This Is Our Time, and a memoir from his stepson, Douglas Gresham, called Lenten Lands. So the reason why, again, I told you, I went through different topics Mm-hmm. And I was like, mm. and I don't want to say because I may use those people later, but I was like, I really wanted to do an Irish author with you. And I thought, you know so much about so many Irish authors. I know that's your wheelhouse. That's what you get into. Um, but a lot of people don't realize he's Irish. A lot of people kind of consider him English. So I thought, well, maybe I can kind of <laughs> pick him. And he's sort of, most people think he, he's he's English. Um, because of his, you know, Oxford University Association and Cambridge and so all that. So I I am a huge fan of one of his books in particular, and it's called Grief Observed. I don't know if you've ever read that or heard of that. So I really thought, oh, I, I would love to be able to talk about this book. And I thought this would be something that you would be into. But the more I got into C.S. Lewis, there was just so much more interesting things that I was really happy that we'll get to talk about tonight. All right. Yeah, yeah. You read, you read. Um, I, I, I am more of the, um, like the chronicles. Okay. And um, but I also like some of the connections with with Tolkien. I think are uh-huh. really awesome. Yeah. So, yeah. So let's, yeah. Okay, let's, let's get in. Woo. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All 
All right. So he was born Clive Staples. Clive Staples Lewis. Doesn't that sound like a... Uh, We're going to go to New Orleans and see him in a club. Clive. It's a great name or like a good name for a dog. I thought Clive is a good, you know, good, strong, sturdy dog name. Um, So he was born 1898 and he's one of the intellectual giants of the 20th century and arguably one of the most influential writers of his day. So he gained acclaim. And this is what's interesting. So, yes, he was a children's author for sure, right? The classic series Chronicles of Narnia. But he also gained acclaim for his apologetics. So his apologetics are like an attempt to kind of remove obstacles to faith where you sort of make explain things to people so they have a better understanding of Christianity in a way that's satisfying and true for them. So that he wrote a lot about that. So he wrote books like Mere Christianity and Screwtape Letters. But then he also was known as a science fiction writer for his this ransom trilogy that he wrote. And then he also gained acclaim for work in medieval Renaissance in literature with allegory of love and a preface to Paradise Lost. So while many writers have their fleeting moment of fame before their books become yesterday's child, all the rage and then has been, remarkably, Lewis's books in all of these areas have remained in print for 70, 80, 90 years. Time Magazine has listed the first of his Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe as one of the top 100 English language novels written in the 20th century. And to date, Narnia books have sold over 100 million copies and been transformed into three major motion picture movies. I didn't realize all of his writing in all those categories. Yeah, um, I think what's pretty um, what's pretty remarkable about um, what you mentioned as far as um, like some of the, the connections with religion, I, I first heard of Lewis through like the lens of Christianity, like really? prior to children and like at the time that I was getting interested in some of the children's books, it was like, it was through a lesson that one of my uncles t- was explaining. And then we end up seeing uh, the animated version of the, of the film mm-hmm. and um, seeing this very Christ-like scene of the lion mm-hmm. being sheared in. Yeah mocked and it was like it was it was very powerful mm-hmm. it was so I think so powerful at the time I wasn't really interested in reading it. you know it was kind of wow. yeah it was some pretty heavy this stuff is intense yeah so um it's it's sort of strange that I had a sort of a backwards introduction to Lewis mm-hmm. where I was hit with heavy stuff mm-hmm. and that got into the what many know as the children's books right you know? right chronicles yeah so. yeah and we're going to take a look at that because I think and like I said, you know, here, usually if you're if you're a writer, you kind of have one area of a specialty. But the fact that he was able to do all of those really, it surprised me. And I guess it kind of made me understand just how brilliant he was. You know, I mean, you're specializing in, you know, medieval Renaissance literature. OK, right there. I mean, you're show off. <laughs> I mean, that's not easy stuff. Like, that's yeah. really well, complicated. You, you got to get past your audience of two and move on to <laughs> something else that... You know, <laughs> trying to make a living there, Nancy. Yeah, yeah, seriously, wow. yeah. So he wrote more than thirty books, which allowed him to reach a vast audience, and they still continue to attract thousands of readers um, every year. So he's born in eighteen ninety eight, uh, November twenty ninth, in Belfast, Ireland, to Albert and Florence or Flora, and his brother Warren, who they called Warney, was born three years earlier. And so, as a toddler, Clive declared that his name was Jack. And so then they all just called him Jack. So that was his his nickname. 
Uh, he was really close with his brother, Warren. The two of them, as children, spent so much time together. And, and as adults, they were had a very, very close relationship with each other and really looked out for each other and took care of each other. And it was a, a great relationship. In 1905, the family moved to their new home on the outskirts of Belfast. And while they were there, he and his brother were kind of created this sort of fantasy world with like fantastic animals and tales of gallantry. And they created this, they called it Boxen. It was like this imaginary land. And they used this story for years and just kind of made up and added onto the story. So you can just see it even at a young age, you know, he's what, you know, seven at this point coming up and making this up. In 1908, when he's about 10, his mom dies from cancer. And that same year, his father also lost his own brother and his father. So he lost his wife, his brother and father in the same year. And that death, him for for Lewis losing his mother really caused him to ponder life's big questions and really kind of doubt the existence of God and um, the problem of suffering. Why do people suffer? Why is this? Why is this okay? Um, so he went on to, he had pre-college education, like a lot of boarding schools, one specifically known as a miserable place for beating its students, which I don't, I don't know if that's, isn't that most of them? It's the medieval influence. <laughs> yeah. Another interesting thing is that he and his brother could not play team sports. Well, it, they they could, but they couldn't succeed at it because one of the features, if you look at your thumb, you know, your thumb has two joints. They mm-hmm. had one. Their thumb only had one joint. So they couldn't like grab a ball. Like they weren't able to, you know, catch and throw a ball. And so that really also added to them being, you know, like made fun of and they couldn't participate in these sports. And so lots of ridicule and abuse from other students at school. So that didn't that didn't really help much. In 1911, he's sent to Malvern, England, because he has severe respiratory issues. So 19, so again, he's like, 13, I just think about this, these, you know, sending kids away at such a young age. And I used to think it was horrible. I think I get it now. <laughs> After having raised. I'm not going to lie. Oh. <laughs> the, thought, the thought has crossed my mind. Um, but um, yeah, there's, I mean, what is it? about, um, you know, I had a hard enough time uh, saying goodbye to my now sophomore yeah. uh, in college um, at that time. But when they're younger, yeah. you know, I think you see this influence of um, the war that plays out in some of the in some of the books as being like this traumatic event. But I also I, I do think the the solitude and the, the loneliness that I think there's a common thread with a lot of these um, a lot of the writers mm-hmm. of that era, a lot of the, the artists of that era where they were either asked to grow up at a much younger age mm-hmm. or they were asked to um, at least break away from the nest. Yeah. Uh, deep thought at a much younger age, you know? Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's maybe our, maybe our kids are too soft. I think there's there's got to be a uh, something in between. And I was thinking as I was listening to this, you know, reading this about him, and then, you know, when he ends up going to England, he had like some respiratory issues. So there was an area that they thought the air would be better for him, for people with lung problems. And then he was at another prep school that his brother had been at. And then that was like around 1913 was when he really abandoned his childhood Christian faith, where he was like, didn't stop believing in the existence of God. And it was like that, that's that boarding school knocked it out of him, knocked the God out of him. And he also started develops a hatred for the English because he was subject to so much ridicule and abuse and uh, just had a horrific time that he really was very prejudiced against the English from his experience those early years at school. 
And you know those damn English, Jim. I mean, we're Irish. We- he was a target. That's for sure. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to side with him right out of the gates on this. One, yes. So. Now, did you ever do one of those ancestry DNA tests? Did you ever check that out? Yeah. Um, well, to, to an extent, we've got sort of two things going. We've got one version that has actual, like a whole bunch of documents mm-hmm. and letters and uh, trying to peat in pictures and piecing things together the old fashioned way. Yeah. And then there was family that, Years ago, when my grandfather on my mother's side was still alive, a gift of like a Christmas gift or something along those lines where they wanted to present the ancestry. And apparently uh, something came up about a relative possibly being a wanted horse thief for stealing <laughs> horses from Scotland and okay. coming back over to Ireland. And my grandpa wanted no part of that. Yeah. He, was, he was so offended. That someone would accuse one of his relatives, you know, and I don't know if it was a relative that he actually remembered or if it was someone that he had a relationship with or just that thought was, um, it it was, it was, I saw how upset he was and I'm like, I don't want to even tinker with this stuff anymore, you know, so I don't. And that can happen, right? I mean, there can be some serious, you know, know, it's not always going to be a good thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, were you, was there, and besides having a horse thief in your, in your family, we're just going to say, it, we're <laughs> just going to go with that. It's true. Mm-hmm. Was there anything about your yeah. lineage that surprised you? Was there any, like, you know, like a, a random percentage that you're like, where did, where's a good story about that? Um, well, actually, um, so I was mentioning my, my mother's side mm-hmm. on my father's side, there's some pretty cool stuff. Like my great grandfather was actually, um, is like connected back to, like the Chief O'Neill days, and um, like there's a lot of early, his early time in Chicago being affiliated with, you know, the first first family member to come over from from Ireland uh, of three other brothers that ended up in the city, but um, you you know went on to become a member of the Chicago Police Department was like this absolute like Renaissance man, you know, um, we've got all these artifacts all over the basement of you know, fiddles that he created and books that were his that I have in my possession and books that go back to Chief O'Neill, log books, practice books Mm -hmm. for feshes and, and these, um, you know, practice journals. So really, really cool, you know, and stuff that we worked on with a Chicago historian, that's a friend of ours, who's published some books um, and helped connect some of those dots. So we had like really cool stuff going back to like the origins of Holy Family and, you know, just really, really cool stuff. Yeah. So surprising. Um, yeah. Like surprising to see that there's so much to find about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then you find the only thing I know about one of the brothers was a report card from, it was, again, this was like the 1917, 1918. Okay report card that just says written across it and you could just picture the teacher doing it the laziest lad in all of my classes (laughs) 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 nothing else like who knows what his grades were she was just that's all the teacher wanted to put on there and she signed her name and it was this this, it was this funny um like you gotta frame that you gotta frame this is what we know about him so this (laughs) other guy pretty impressive but could be a stick in the mud like i don't want (laughs) to I want to know what happened to this guy yeah. over here. So, Imagine doing that now. Like you're great. Yeah. You're just gonna be like, yeah, this yeah. kid's lazy. Imagine what would happen. Finding well, some of those. Like, I, I, but I do love that. I love when you can just kind of something, you know, we, one, 
one relative that we discovered who were related to, do you know Sylvia Beach, who owned that book, that famous bookstore in Paris? Oh that yeah. Yeah, That's yeah. a relative of mine. Wow. Yeah. So we figured that that's the only really relative I care about on my dad's side. We're not, we, you know, it's, we're not too into his side of the family, but we the, did it. That's where the drive to, the drive to consume literature I comes I wonder, from. you know what? I, I, I wonder. I just thought that was That'd really a cool connection. So we did ours. And I think I was like 90% Irish. I mean, like, you know, we, not a huge surprise. Yeah. So you've heard the story about when my husband did his, right? So Patrick Flanagan. Everyone's like, oh, he's not too Irish. Well, then he discovers he's not. And it it came about sort of organically, but with a relative kind of starting to dig in. And then when he did the DNA thing, and I, you know, I, someone had asked me, it was like just before Father's Day, and I got him the DNA kit. And this woman at church, who I didn't know very well, we were leaving church, and she goes, oh, what'd you get? You know, what'd you get your husband for Father's Day? And I go, oh, a DNA test. And she just looked at me. Excuse me? She looked at me and walked away. And I was like, oh, wait, that didn't come out right. No, it's. Yeah, I'm like, okay. oops. Like an ancestry. To... Yeah, it was too late. She was in the parking lot running for me <laughs> at that point. So he figured out that he's more he's more English than Irish. You know, so that was very interesting. And in Dutch, you know, there's a lot of Dutch. His mm-hmm. family name was actually not Flanagan. That was truly, I remember hearing the story. And that was my first that was the first story that I heard of someone like in that. And it was such a like cautionary tale yeah. of, are you willing to look behind it? Like, like you said, it's your identity real or perceived, right. it's your identity. Yeah. And are you, are you willing to part with that? If you get a look behind the curtain and that's, you know, that, well, that was pretty some enough. members in Pat's family don't want to admit it and say they don't believe it. So that's fine. Again, whatever, you know, whatever you need. So, all right, let's get back to Lewis, C.S. Lewis. So he's kind of goes back and forth and like he's in these little like colleges. He has private tutors. And then in 1917, three years after the outbreak of World War One, he's in, he enlisted in the British Army and he started officer training in Oxford. And then his roommate at the time was his buddy, Edward Patty Moore, Patty Moore a great they were became really great friends and then jack was commissioned or lewis or jack however one referred to him was commissioned as an officer and reached the front line in france on his 19th birthday and then in 1918 he was sent home after being wounded by shrapnel he recuperated and was returning to duty in october but he was just still assigned to england he stayed in england and he was discharged in 1919 and his roommate, Patty Moore, who was his good buddy, was killed in France and buried in France. So from January 1919 until June 1924, he was at the University of College, Oxford, resumed his studies. And then in 1920, he, which I just, you just see such a beautiful side of him, he decided to live as a surrogate son with Patty Moore's mom. So because she had lost her son, he said, you know, I'm going to be like your surrogate son and like take care of you and and be there with you. She and her daughter rented various houses and they all he was with them all the time. They rented all these houses and then they eventually bought this property in the kilns and the the mom, Mrs. Moore and C.S. Lewis and his brother Warney purchased the property jointly, but they put it in her name and they held the rights of life tenancy. But they all ended up living there. You know, so his brother lived there, he lived there, and they he just felt such a connection to her because she had lost her son that they ended up, you know, making sure she was taken care of, which I thought was really lovely. So this guy who was sent away to 
boarding school at a young age. Yeah. And lost his mom <laughs> uh, when he was 10, you know, yeah, lost his mom. So yeah. What a, I mean, that disconnect. Yeah. People aren't, people aren't, aren't meant to be alone. No, no. So 1924, he graduates from Oxford University. He's focusing on literature, classic philosophy. And then he gets a teaching position at Magdalen College and becomes part of the university. In 1929, his father passes away. But 1929 was also a really important year for him because having once said that he didn't believe in God, he states in one of his writings that you must picture me alone in that room at Magdalen night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him, him with a capital H, whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and I admitted that God was God, and I knelt and I prayed. Perhaps that night the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. So he eventually becomes a Christian after he has long talks with his buddy, you mentioned J.R.R. Token, who was a devout Roman Catholic. Mm-hmm. And another buddy of his, Hugo Dyson. What I know of his uh, his friendship with um, Tolkien, not only their uh, conversations on Christianity, but they were paired up with some other writers from Oxford at the mm-hmm. time, and they had a group that they that they called the Inklings. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So, um, yeah, I thought that was always a cool connection because I learned that well well after knowing some of the Tolkien books and knowing some of the Lewis books as a kid and then growing and reading some of their more mature things and then finding this, you know, to me, it just makes so much sense yeah. that their, that their careers and lives intersected. And how they come. Yeah. They and so that, yeah. that group, the inkling, so that like, they started that in about like 1933 that, you know, they were buddies before that, but they started this group. And so they would meet, I think about 16 years they'd meet and they would either meet in Jack's room or they would, and Thursday evenings, and then they would have lunch like Mondays or Fridays. But they met like a couple times a week. Imagine having a group of guys or a group of friends who you would go once or twice a week. I mean, what an indulgence, right? To be able to have yeah. that time. And you're all authors and you're all writers and you're all professors and you're all getting together and thinking and what the conversations that must have come out of that. Yeah, amazing. And like you said, just like the events of the day. I mean, these they're living through some some globe, global changing times. Yeah. Uh, they're, they have all of the all of the um, expectations that the university has on them and they're all doing their own things outside. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Still able to find each other and use each other as soundboards on their ideas and debates yeah. over some of these uh, early, you know, questions of, of God and questions of religion, but also, you know, how does this manuscript look? How does this right. short story look? Yeah. What do you think about this? Sound to you? Yeah. yeah. And they have that. I mean, to, to live through two world wars, right? And that time in between, which had to be such a, a dynamic time and a time of of absolute, you know, rethinking everything. What are we doing? And to, for them, those men to see what they saw and to live through what they lived through, to lose friends, to lose family. And then, you know, what does that do to what what are they thinking about? What are they talking about? You know, those those times of crisis are it, it's interesting. It would have been fun to be sitting at the pub. What was the pub? It was the uh, the eagle and the child. To be sitting oh, wow. in that pub and just be listening to hear yeah. what the things that they would talk about. So, and so you mentioned. You have to figure some of those bartenders or some of those servers were also there for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Were also there for years. So what were they privy to? Imagine. Yeah. yeah. 
I mean, twice a week. Gosh, it's such an, like I said, it's an indulgence. It'd, it'd be nice to have a group like that and have that. So you had mentioned too about their, his relationship with Tolkien. And so he was really instrumental in writing of the Lord of the Rings. And soon after they became friends in the 1920s, Tolkien began showing Lewis snatches of this massive myth he was creating about Middle Earth. And when he finally began writing this new Hobbit that became the Lord of the Rings, he suffered from bouts of writer's block that could last for years. And so Lewis provided encouragement and the prodding that Tolkien needed to get through those dry spells and to help write those books. He lo Lewis loved Norse mythology and science fiction. I'm trying to think, like, what's Norse mythology? Is that like Beowulf? Is that considered um, Nor? I don't. I don't know what Norse. Is it like o Odin? I don't know. We'll have to. We'll have to go. I. I think there's a reason that, I don't uh, know. <laughs> well, it's, it's no wonder that um, probably the other guy, <laughs> the other guy in that country who knew who knew much about Norse mythology was was Tolkien. I mean, yeah. Tolkien totally studied these um, old mythologies dead languages yeah. i mean he put all this stuff together to create his own languages for the for the books so their conversations that you know we, we talk about literature and religion but also goes into ancient languages and what was the what was the term for tolkien where th there's actually like a term for someone who studies the the old um mm. the old languages like fl philologist or something oh, I I don't know. Mm. but it was him like going back and looking at these very very old stories like to to a point where there was barely anyone who could interpret translate mm -hmm. the the works yeah. so then he'd spend years oh, working out language keys yeah. so that he could read these texts yeah. so and there's a reason too if a story is that good that it's passed on for hundreds of years you know you think about like homer's stories and you know those had to be repeated over and over again and there's a formula to that right this journey and this quest and trying to get this valuable prize you know like the, the search for the holy grail that kind of mythology sort of stuff and that really appealed to token and to lewis and you can see that in the writing too right it's like there's always this quest but those are those are classic story formats you know that that those stories work they engage people they drew people in and there's a reason why you know people continue to kind of use that formula so at a suggestion from another professor he wrote the um, English, the 16th century English literature for the Oxford history of English literature series. 16th century English literature. So I'm thinking it's one of those. Remember when we'd get back in college when we'd have the anthologies and they'd yeah. be like onion skin paper yeah. and they'd be like, oh, read 100 okay. pages. And you're like, that's like a month's worth of reading. Yeah, there's uh, each page was you'd get through two pages. It was like a chapter of another book. <laughs> And like you said, it was so thin. I usually, whatever I had for lunch, would oh, kind of hurry up and read it yeah. before uh, that, my, I mean, thumbprint, yeah. my thumbprint soaked through it. Oh, gosh. Oh, but another thing, you know, I'd mentioned before about even though like he didn't like team sports just because he couldn't really participate, he was addicted to vigorous exercise. He loved to run. He would take 10, 15, 20 mile runs across the countryside loved like really intense like rugged hills and mountains he would love to ride the bicycle all over the place he would swim in like freezing cold streams and ponds loved rowing a boat super he and his brother would go they'd take 50 mile hiking trips like they were super into it and kept up for a long time until probably like around world war ii where he was you know busy doing more things but he was pretty into like extreme physical exercise yeah so going from no sports to extreme sports mm -hmm. Thinking it 
take the individual to the highest level possible. Yeah. So. Yeah. So it wasn't like he wasn't physically active. He really was. And again, that kind of surprised me too, because you just kind of see him as sort of a bookworm, you know, writer guy, but it's like, no, he really enjoyed being outside and being and kind of pushing himself to the extremes. Um, in 1942, he, there was this, a series of like weekly installments from this book that he eventually published called the screw tape letters. And this is really popular. This comes up in everything that I read about him. And it's sort of like a satirical fiction novel. And it was, it's a classic, but I had never, I I mean, the only time I've heard of it was when I read about him, but there's sort of like this demon whose name is screw tape and he's got a nephew wormwood and, and then he's trying to teach him how to be a tempter and how to tempt man And so the story kind of talks about how do you tempt an Englishman? Like, what do you do? What do you do to tempt him? So, you know, sort of a a lesson, you know, there's morals to it and stuff, but it was sort of funny and, and, and quirky. And so he didn't, you know, as his writing, he didn't expect to make any money from his books. He was sure that they'd all be out of print by the time that he died. And so someone Mm -hmm. was, wrote him a letter and said that they wanted to get a first edition of the screw tape letters and he said it's don't don't spend your money he's like it's not going to be it's going to be it's not going to be worth it you'll get it used somewhere in a bookstore and so um now they, they sell for like twelve hundred dollars a copy wow. but yeah he's like don't bother, don't waste your money yeah that's wild it almost sounds like um like the like the the trickster or it, or even some of the um like native american tales where there's this com- combination of the the morality tale and you know I don't know how much spirituality he's he's inserted into that into that book but being a a devout fan of literature um, and mythology it that sounds like it's in vain with some of the things he probably studied from yeah. centuries earlier yeah for sure during World War II he gave really super popular radio broadcasts on Christianity. And that's he really got a lot of people to convert to Christianity from these speeches. And that was what was, all his speeches were collected in this book called Mere Christianity. And they were why then he started to get all these correspondence from people from all over the world. He would get so many letters from people, you know, all over the world because these broadcasts would go out and people would hear them. And they really made a big difference, you know, in people's lives. And they, they contacted him with their own questions and their own, you know, faith issues and I wanted to look and see specifically, so what what were his beliefs? What did he believe in? And, you know, was he super conservative? Was he, and actually I was kind of surprised because he had a more liberal religious view than I anticipated. Like he, he didn't believe, like he, he, while he kind of, you know, wondered about, you know, the gospels and, and literal interpretation, he, you know, he had this idea that, that, you know, we did, that the world wasn't created in seven days. You know, he he actually started, you know, really kind of like, yeah, I don't I don't think it did. So there were things in there that he was like, this is a story. This is a lesson. This is not fact. You know, people who would listen to him, that wasn't, they were had a problem with some of that, you know, the more conservative views. Mm-hmm. And that salvation isn't just limited to certain religions, that you could have a different faith and you could still enter heaven. That was controversial at the time, you know, for, for a lot of Christians who felt, especially the evangelical ones, felt like, no. You have to believe this one thing or you're not getting into heaven. And then he also didn't think that the Bible was, you know, literal history and that you need to follow it literally. He said, I still believe as I do that all Holy Scripture in some sense, though not all parts of it in the same sense is the word of God. I was pleasantly surprised that he was a little more controversial or uh, controversial for the time, probably easier to to agree with what he's saying now. But 
I just it just reminded me too of you spend five minutes on Facebook and people using the Bible as a reason to hate and to support their cruelty and their hatred and that just mm-hmm. it, it infuriates me infuriates me that you would use some, that text to justify your hatred for another person yeah or the the questioning of any of a book of faith as something other than absolute mm-hmm. to the word you know um the suggestion that it could be uh stories that represent someone as opposed to the word of someone it's probably as old as the university um uh, university versus religion conversation yeah. or collision um that's that's ever come it's interesting that you when you when you were explaining his um or when you were reviewing his his resume a bit in the beginning about all these different types of writing that he'd done it is pretty interesting that it's at, at that time of his career that that he was um that he was giving these speeches like that's almost like a different not just a different style of writing but almost like a different occupation mm-hmm. like a different um calling yeah, like a different you know, muscle to, to be yeah to be good at that too but beyond public speaking, it's public speaking, but it's re- religious. It's religious, but it's not fully religious mm-hmm. because it's intersecting with his uh, university studies. You know, it's it's it's, it's expressing a, a worldview of other books and 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 people that he'd met while at Oxford, and I'm sure that, that it's pretty unique for for that time. And to have someone who who stopped believing in God, then came back to it then had all these experiences, like we said, with the war and, and questioning, and yet was still able to have his faith in spite of all of this, right? To have those doubts, to have the questioning, to have, to say, I don't know if this is real, I don't know, and to, to be brought back to it, but to be strong enough with that to say, I'm going to, que- I'm still going to question some of this, but it's not going to make me lose my faith. That's the definition of faith. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Is yeah. believing in something without having it necessarily proven to you in front of your face. Yeah. I mean. So then during the 1940s, he started writing one of the seven books that would compromise the Chronicles of Narnia. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe was released in 1950. And that was a story, you know, you'd mentioned that it focused on the four siblings who during wartime walked through an armoire to enter the magical world of Narnia, a land resplendent with mythical creatures and talking animals. I think it goes back to that, you know, that little imaginary landscape he and his brother started talking about when they were young. Um, I wondered when you were, I I was trying to think back, did you, did they, did he call it by name? Um, He and his brother, it was just a place that they described. I think it was Boxen. And so there's these series of, A variety of biblical themes are presented, as you mentioned. One prominent character is Aslan, the the lion and the ruler of Narnia, who had been interpreted as the Christ figure. Then, So these four children enter Narnia. They find themselves in this land frozen that was always winter, never Christmas, by the White Witch. And then there's an unhappy middle child, Edmund, who's resentful of being bossed about by his older brother, broods with meanness and misery. And then the devil in the shape of the witch tempts him. Basically, like the 30 pieces of silver is, you know, he's tempted with candy, I believe, um, or some kind of a dessert. And then Edmund betrays his siblings and their Narnian friends. And so the sins of Edmund can only be redeemed by the supreme sacrifice of Aslan. And so this Christ lion willingly lays on his life, submitting himself to be bound, thrashed, humiliated by the White Witch, allowing his mane to be cut, himself to be slaughtered on the sacrificial stone. 
And then the body goes missing. And then during the night, two of the girls lay down their head like Mary Magdalene and his mother. And then after a long night, all of a sudden he's alive again. And so he explains this was deep magic and there's pure sacrifice, vanquishes death. And so this resurrected, yeah, the resurrected Aslan gives Edmund a a long talk and the boy comes back kind of transformed by the the lion's words. So Lewis's intention with that was he hoped the book would soften up religious reflexes, make it easier for children to accept Christianity when they met it later in life. So they'd Mm -hmm. kind of have the sense of the story and see this sort of played out and have it be more believable when they when they were approached with with the literature the the religious literature so a lot of this christian sort of the these christian stories interwoven through through all of this so definitely what you picked up on yeah and it was um, i am you know reading we were talking we've talked tolkien as well and I, reading these two books and one definitely feels more fantasy versus um, i mean obviously both fantasy fantasy books but w- with tolkien and the creation of many of the characters the a lot of the characters did not seem as relatable you know it felt like there was a lot more suspension as you're as you're going through and reading the stories and learning about the characters um, you know, it's the book starts out by explaining what a hobbit even is mm-hmm. because you don't have that connection. But when you're reading Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe as a young kid, and it's a group of kids who are separated from their parents, and uh, a witch, and a very familiar story of the lion and the you know the the tort like the the it was the torture mm-hmm. sequence and the and the the mocking yeah. that was like what to like to this day really like sticks like really really sticks yeah. and I mean it's it was so aligned with like the station like some of the stations of the cross mm-hmm. lessons that yeah we learned and um like I like instantly like that connection was like I said it was there before I even read the books. Mm-hmm. Like knowing the scene and its representation was there before I was able to read chapter one of, mm-hmm. of the book. Yeah. So yeah, very pretty pretty strong impressions mm-hmm. at a young age, you know. Yeah. You so, need counseling now. You know, it's like wow, you're bringing <laughs> well, me back. It's like oh, wow. Sorry. Well, it's good to talk about it. Get it out, Good right? You, you, like you're like yeah. you had it. Yeah. You had it buried for so Thanks. long. Thanks a lot. <laughs> Here we go. I'm not gonna go to sleep tonight. That's so, why I'm here. The happy ending. <laughs> we'll get we'll get to good stuff, right? Well, <laughs> so well, sort of. No, we won't. So he basically the, the, again, Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe. That series is like his most enduring and beloved book. So that's that's what most people think of. That's what I had thought of. So when I did come across that other book that I mentioned earlier, we'll talk about that. I was like, oh, this is the same guy. Like it was it was weird to me that it was the same person. And so it just again, it shows the depth of him and what he's able to do. And like you said, the radio broadcast and to be able to do all of that and connect with so many different groups of people. You know, usually a lot of those groups don't necessarily intersect. Maybe the science fiction and the children might intersect Mm -hmm. more, but a lot of those groups don't intersect. So it was just kind of that he could appeal to such a broad audience. I found very intriguing. Um, In 1954, Mrs. Moore passed away. And so that's when there he and um, Warnier left kind of on their own in the um, in the kilns in the little cottage there. So throughout this time, he's getting a ton of honorary degrees from many colleges. He's got different 
chairman positions and continues to teach. You know, there's all these details about that. So he was a fellow and a tutor in English literature at Oxford University until 1954, when he was unanimously elected to the chair of medieval and Renaissance literature at Cambridge University. And that was a position he held until his retirement. But what's really interesting, too, is the fact that he gave away all of his royalties from his books. He didn't keep any of them. Hmm. And... So he just had this kind of this modest salary, you know, as a as a professor. They called them tutors. But he set up this charitable trust to give away whatever money he received from his books would be given to charity. And when he he then gets a bill from the government for taxes and he's like, oh I gave that all away. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, which um, do, do you know which um, which charities by any chance? I'd be curious. Well, they didn't mention specifically, but. Yeah. They, the his stepson talks about later about how generous he was with everybody, mm-hmm. and he has a specific example, which is, it seemed that this was sort of how he gave away his to anybody, whoever needed it. Oh, um, yeah. So in 1952, his fame's growing. A lot of people are writing to him, and this opens up this kind of unexpected door of a ministry for him. Right. So all these correspondents were Christians or were interested in the in the true claims of Christianity. And so this correspondence leads him to meeting with this woman who would later become his wife, Helen Joy Davidman, or Joy, as she was known. And she was a brilliant writer and poet. She was 16 years younger than he was. She had converted to Christianity in part because of his writings. So according to Lewis, he says, I never expected to have in my 60s the happiness that passed me by in the 20s. And that Late, brief, and intense happiness is what brings such poignancy when you read A Grief Observed, the book that he wrote after her death. And so mm-hmm. the final days of Joy's life, so Joy Davidman, her battle with cancer, her brief year of remission before the cancer returned, are the things that most of C.S. Lewis's fans know about. They know that story. They know that, that you know brief relationship. But I didn't know anything about her other than those few years she was with C.S. Lewis. And so I really Mm -hmm. wanted to kind of go back and figure out who was she? How did she get to be there with him? And I always love that. I'm always a fan of whenever you can go back and whose voice are you not hearing? I'm always intrigued by that. Whenever you read a book, whose perspective am I not hearing? Can I trust my narrator? And to kind of go back and see who she was gave it a whole different perspective of how I then understood their relationship. Yeah, I'm curious to see the connection now that we've dissected him into having wearing so many different hats. Like, where does she where does she fit in? So she she was had just an exciting life as he did. She pursued truth. She was willing to go anywhere and do anything to find love and fulfillment. And she was really precocious and incredibly intelligent. So she was born in 1915 in a secular middle class Jewish family in New York and grew up in the Bronx with her younger brother Howard. Both her parents were employed even during the Great Depression, and so she was actually provided a very good education, piano lessons, family vacations, so she didn't really struggle the way a lot of people did. But she was a child prodigy. She was had these exceptional critical, analytical, and musical skills. She looked at a score, a Chopin score to play on the piano. She looked at it once, and she played the whole thing. Like, by heart. Like, this is the genius we're talking about here, right? One time looking at it, could play it again. Never looked at it again. And so when she was young, too, she had this lifelong taste for fantasy literature. And that kind of led her to first reading C.S. Lewis. Mm-hmm. And then eventually he would kind of lead her, his writings would lead her to religion. But she finished high school at 14. She graduated college at 19. 
and she got her master's degree in three semesters. She worked hard as a teacher, a writer. She was an, ed- an editor. She was really best known for her poetry, which got a lot of awards. She had a lot of different jobs. She At one point, she was writing movie scripts. She was writing newspaper columns. She was a book reviewer, poetry editor. So she was very busy, very successful, very highly regarded. But during the Great Depression, there were a few incidents that truly affected her. One was she saw an orphan, a hungry orphan, j- throw herself off a roof and kill herself. And that just really caused her to question capitalism and the fairness of it and the American economic system. So she joined the Communist Party in 1938. She married her first husband. He was an author, William Lindsay Gresham, in 1942. And because he had also been associated with communism and they had a mutual interest in that. And they had two sons, they had David and Douglas. And so Douglas is going to come up a lot later. He's the one who wrote the book about C.S. Lewis, his relationship with his mother. Her husband, Bill, had become disillusioned with the Communist Party, though, because he went and volunteered in Spain during the Spanish Civil War to fight fascism. And and that he kind of influenced her to, to give up the party altogether because he's like, it's not what we think it is. And so after the birth of her two sons, she she stays home. She's taking care of the kids. She does freelance work. He wrote a book called Nightmare Alley, which is about the shadowy world of second-rate carnival. I'm like, what's a second-rate carnival? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or what's yeah. a first? Do tell. <laughs> I can't imagine it being any worse than what I've seen, so I don't know what I'm seeing. But their marriage had a lot of difficulties, a lot of financial problems. He was uh, an alcoholic. He had a violent temper. He was constantly cheating on her. And she said, you know, for the first time, my pride was forced to admit that I was not, after all, the master of my fate. All my defenses, all my walls of arrogance and self-love that I hid behind, which I'd hid from God, went down momentarily and God came in. And so the couple then started to look to religion to try to get answers for their marital problems, see if there was a way through that that they could solve their issues. And so they studied a lot. They started to read C.S. Lewis. They started to read his books. They also kind of experimented with L. Ron Hubbard's theory of Dianetics, but they eventually just became estranged. They continued to live together, but they were not truly together. And then a a fellow American writer introduced her to C.S. Lewis, like gave the address and said, you should, you know, you should start to write him and and contact him. So she did. And that was in 1950. So she starts writing him. And then she goes to England in 1952 to meet him. And so she flies there by herself. She she's working on this book about the Ten Commandments. And so she wanted to kind of talk with him about that and kind of get his suggestions. And so at this point, he had just was this he had just recently left Oxford. Is that right? Yeah. Around that time. Yeah. In the early mid 50s. I think 54 was when he left. Okay, okay. So he was. So when she started writing him, he was still at Oxford. Yeah. Yeah. She meets him for a few lunch meetings. They go for walks. And his brother was with his brother. Warren, he was there as well. And he Warren um, actually writes about this in the diary and says that this rapid friendship grew between his brother. And he describes her as this Christian convert of the Jewish race, medium height, good figure, horned rimmed glasses, quite extraordinarily uninhibited. And he said she spent Christmas and a fortnight at the kilns with the brothers. And he could tell that she was really she had fallen in love with him, but he didn't really, Lewis didn't really reciprocate. You get the sense that he's a sort of a, just, you know, confirmed bachelor at this point, you know, in the 60s, mm-hmm. right? He's like, I missed my boat. I missed that. So he, and he's un, unpracticed. He doesn't really know how to do this. And think of what he'd already been through up to that point, career-wise, 
what had happened to the globe, what had happened with his family. Right. Um, yeah, I think that some of those, you go back into earlier eras and those people lived several lifetimes, it seems, in, yeah. in half the amount of years. You know? Yeah. And, you know, he, he had kind of thought that ship had sailed. You know, he thought this is not and never really never had a serious relationship like that. So had no didn't really know how to do it, <laughs> you know, you know how to. But definitely his brother saw there's they had this very quick, very instantaneous friendship that developed. So she was just there for a visit. She goes back home because she got a letter from her husband saying that he was having an affair with her cousin. He wanted a divorce. So she goes back, she gives the husband the divorce, and then she comes back to England with her sons. She brings her two sons with her in November 1953. And this is kind of when her son, Douglas, st- steps in. He's written a book about this. And it's just interesting to see his perspective because he was there when other people weren't. So it's he's talking things about the relationship other people wouldn't know who weren't there, who weren't privy to that. He said the first day he met C.S. Lewis, he remembers it vividly. He had just arrived in England with his mother and his brother, and Lewis had invited them to come and stay with him for a few days at the kilns. He was filled with anticipation. He was about to meet the creator of Narnia, a man who surely was filled with magic. He goes, I remember walking through the back porch of the kitchen door, and as we walked in, Jack appeared from the other side of the kitchen. He was perhaps the most shabby-looking individual I'd ever seen in my life. He's like, as far as I was concerned, this was a man on speaking terms with High King Peter and Aslan and looked completely scruffy. There was nothing particularly handsome about him. He was balding. He wore clothes that were almost falling apart. He had slippers on with the heel crushed, and he had long nicotine-stained teeth and fingers. He was a mess. But he said that first impression quickly wore off and there was a glow of friendship about him. He said within about five minutes, the way he approached me and talked to me and the way we had a conversation going completely eradicated any misgivings I might have had about the man. I lost an idol and I gained a friend. And for me, it was very simple. This was a man who was obviously fond of my mother and was going to be fond of me. And he and his brother Warney were just wonderful, wonderful people. Right. I just love that little, it's like that insight to what this little boy whose parents got divorced, he's dragged across the world. And it's nice that he was able to have that connection with him. Because they, yeah. I, that's another thing, too. They don't talk too much about that, that relationship or his step his stepsons. But it's another um, another phase of life and another like reconnection with family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So she found a flat in London. She enrolled the boys in a school. But soon ran into financial difficulties because her ex-husband stopped sending money. And so Lewis then paid for the school fees, and he found them a house that was closer to him in the kilns. And they said, you know, he originally regarded her as this agreeable intellectual companion and a personal friend. And Warren, his brother, wrote, for Jack, the attraction was at first undoubtedly intellectual. Joy was the only woman whom he had met who had a brain, which matched his own in suppleness, in width of interest, and an analytical grasp and above all, in humor and a sense of fun. So they really seemed like-minded. They seemed that they mm-hmm. really were connecting. And Lewis states that he's, when he's talking about Joy, he says, she was my daughter, my mother, my pupil, my teacher, my subject, my sovereign, and holding all these in solution, my trusty comrade, my friend, shipmate, fellow soldier, my mistress, but at the same time, all that any man friend, and I have had good ones, has ever been to me, perhaps more. It's quite a compliment. Yeah, I Pat said the same thing about me the other day. (laughs) Yeah, sort of. uh, Pretty impressive. I wrote something like that in a in a a Valentine's Day card earlier this year. Uh, (laughs) 
but yeah, it's quite a... I'll, yeah, I'll take a cut picture of that. You can write that next year. So he started to ask her her opinion on his writing and some criticism about his writing. And so they would they would bounce ideas off of each other. And then she finished her book about the Ten Commandments that she wrote. And then he had a preface in it. In 1956, her visa was not renewed. And so she and her sons would have to go back to America. So he agreed. Again, they're still platonic at this point. They're just very good friends. But he agreed that he would enter a civil marriage contract in April with her. So this is 1956, so that she could stay and live in the UK. The problem, though, is you know, we've got these inklings, right? We've got these buddies. We've got the old men friends who have been friends with him forever who sees this woman, this much younger woman, coming in, and they're very suspicious of her. Mm-hmm. And they don't like the fact that he's now bouncing ideas off of her and not them and that he's talking about her all the time. And they're they're a bit threatened by this. And they also don't they they're nervous. Mm-hmm. So there's been things that depending on what you read, people think that she had an ulterior motive. Douglas, her son, talks about that. And he says their relationship was almost always mischaracterized by those seeking to malign my mother's reputation. He said, many people think she set out to trap C.S. Lewis. Well, getting cancer and dying is not a very good way of doing that. That's nonsense. What happened was simple. Jack and my mother came together and found each other to be the only other person each of them had ever met that was on their level. I've not known anyone since who was on that level. To be honest, I've met some very bright, very intelligent, and very wonderful people, but nobody who stood up to Jack and my mother. And he says they grew closer and closer, and time went by. And when Jack found that she was in financial difficulties, he would help. And people mistake that as being specifically for my mother. So that was the thing, too. They're like, oh, she's after your money. She wants you to support her. But he was saying, you know, Jack helped anybody. Whoever, if you needed money, he helped you. And he talks about this time he was giving a speech in America. He was giving a lecture. And he said he talked about the fact that Jack did this, that he would you know, help people. And someone in the crowd stood up and like waved their hand. And he said this was an Egyptian student who had been sent over to England to be a student at Oxford to study medicine. And for some reason, his financing had dried up. And someone told Lewis about it. And the next morning, the young man found a very large check had been pushed under his door. And he said the money just kept coming until he completed medical school. And he said this man stood up and he was weeping when he finished. He said, this is what Jack did. And then he says that he and Jack got along famously. He always claimed he wasn't good with children, but he was very good with them. In our case, he was as good as he could possibly be. He supported us in everything we could do. When I did something stupid, I'd be told off, but I never had to be punished. But I was scolded once or twice. So it was just nice to see, too, that he... Again, kind of an instant family so late in his life to have these. And the the other brother, David, had, I think, was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. So he was not well, and he had a lot of issues with that. So Douglas was kind of needed someone, needed a father, because he didn't wasn't really getting that from his brother or his dad who was across the ocean. So again, their relationship. You have someone like that who will defend your, uh, defend your legacy, you know, I mean. What kind of an impression? Of, did yeah, him, you know. Yeah, I mean, to to could, have, could have let him go and lived off probably royalties of his. Well, you said he gave most of his stuff away, yeah. but he could have carved out a, a career on being the biographer of you know. He kind of did. <laughs> without, yeah, but without uh, by without maligning the, him, right? He, yeah. Yeah, glamorize him. Yeah. He could have. He could have been. Yeah. And he was also very a very religious person. There's a few scenes he talks about his kind of an intense religious conversion. And I think Lewis had a big influence on that as well. So their relationship 
the the buddies, the friends are kind of they they don't really like that she's sort of intruding on this, you know, exclusive club. And they just thought she was taking him for a ride. And but they they live separately. They did not live together even after they got married. The civil marriage, right? But the love between them really did continue to grow, and this secret unmarriage grew into a real thing in the minds of the participants. They did fall in love, and they actually, at one point, she was preparing, she was going to actually move in with him in 1956, and then around that time, she started to complain that her hip was hurting her. The boys got a message that they had to come home from school because their mom had broken her leg, but the truth was that she had cancer and had eaten the bone, and um, she was hospitalized and they said Jack struggled to tell the boys that their mom had cancer and was probably dying, and they were just absolutely stunned. And it was right at this time that Lewis recognized that he had fallen in love with her. When he realized he would lose her, that's when it hit him that he loved her. He wrote to a friend. He said, this new beauty and new tragedy have entered my life. You'd be surprised, or perhaps you would not, to know how much of a strange sort of happiness and even gaiety there is between us. She went under operations, radiation treatment, for the cancer. And in March of 1957, he wrote in his diary, one of the most painful days of my life, a sentence of death has been passed on joy, and the end is only a matter of time. So this relationship fell to the point where he wanted to have an actual Christian ceremony. He's like, we had the civil marriage, but she's in the hospital. It's March 1957, and he wants to do a, a real Christian formal ceremony, you know, almost like a now this is real, now this counts. And so a week later, she leaves the hospital and she's taken to the kilns and she starts, she goes into remission and she starts helping him with his writing. She's organizing his financial records. She's fixing his wardrobe, which had a lot to be desired. She had the house completely renovated, completely redecorated. She said it was so filthy. They would just ash their cigars and their cigarettes onto the carpet because they said it kept the moths from eating the carpet and it was just filthy and it was in such bad shape that at one point Douglas was up reading in his bedroom and the ceiling caved in on him and so she's like okay so she has all these tradesmen come in they redo the house they do the ceiling they fix everything they redo the gardens the greenhouse and all this at the point where they thought she would have you know weeks to live and she has this great resurgence and everything's back to life like the house is back to life the gardens everything and she really was very protective of him. And if the people would always be coming onto the property and she would go out with a like a shotgun and be like, get out of here, like leave him alone, give him his privacy. So very protective of him. And so then October 59, so a few years later, she has, gets a checkup and it says the cancer's returned. And then March 1960 was not responding at all to therapy. So he said, let's go to Greece. She'd always wanted to go to Greece. And so they go take this trip and she comes back and it's worse. She's just worse after it. And she ends up dying July 13th, 1960 at the age of 45. And Douglas is 14 years old at the time. And he comes back to for the funeral and he says, I opened the door and it was just a shock. Jack, who I'd seen a week earlier, had shriveled into a small, desperate man. He was standing with his left hand on the mantelpiece. And I said, hello, Jack. And burst into tears. And he came rushing across the room and he held me in his arms and we just stood there and wept. Finally, I said, Jack, what are we going to do? And he said, well, I suppose we'll just have to carry on, Doug. And that's what we set out to do. And so the epitaph that he wrote for her grave was, Hear the whole world, stars, water, air, and field, and forest, as they were reflected in a single mind, like cast-off clothes was left behind in ashes, yet with hopes that she, reborn from holy poverty in Lenten days, hereafter may resume them on her Easter day. Like everything she left behind, 
all this, the whole world's still here and she's not. Yeah. The idea of her bringing that, bringing his whole, his whole place back to life, but at the expense of, she's not going to be there to yeah. enjoy it with him. Yeah. You know? So when he, when she died, he kind of wrote these notebooks, like four notebooks four notebooks and just started his words, his trying to process his grief. And it's called a grief observed. It was an attempt to just kind of work through his pain, right? To kind of write through this, mm -hmm. talk through it. And he actually published it under a pseudonym. And so his friends would actually buy him the book and give it to him like, hey, you should really read this. It might help you with your grief. Oh, wow. And yeah. like, it's really good. It's really good. <laughs> I know. I know all that stuff already. <laughs> yes. I don't need don't need your help. Really funny. So, but it's this real honest reflection on like fundamental issues of life and death and faith in the midst of loss. And so he describes his feelings and paying tribute to his wife. He recounts his wavering faith due to his overwhelming grief, which he suffered after her death and his struggle to regain that faith. And it's really this kind of really truthful account of how loss can lead even a very strong believer to lose all sense of meaning in the universe. And kind of an inspirational tale of how you can regain your bearings. And so actually, I have this for you, which I'm going to put in your mailbox tomorrow. All right. Yeah. So it's very, look at, it's very tiny. Yeah. So I'll put that right. in your mailbox. And so then you could take a look at that. So now I'm just thinking of the, the, like the image of these, this young man and the, the young man and the older man, like embracing over the, you know, the common grief of, yeah. of her loss. Pretty Pretty powerful image but and and you know. that message that we'll, we'll we'll get through it you know we'll, we'll get through it together and that thank god they had each other you know mm -hmm. because basically you know douglas at this point he's he's pretty much on his own and to have lewis recognize that is really is important it's against he he's really been a father for a few years you know he's come into this mm -hmm. very late in life not really in practice but just the genuine kindness of him which we've seen over and over again in his life with the good things he did for people and the kind things he did for people and the, and the writing to people when none of that, none of that benefited him. You know what I mean? It was all to, to benefit other people and that he, that he did that and that you see that in a, in a very close relationship of that happening. And it's, it was really nice to read that. But it's who it's, you know, like the impossible for him to escape his, uh, to escape who he was, you know, like, that's him. And I think that's the importance of having this like defender, um, this young, young man who's, you know, wants to tell the world about who this guy was outside of the writer mm -hmm. and outside of, um, you know, his person, his public persona, yeah. you know, the value of that is, um, it says something about mm -hmm. the guy for sure. Yeah. So I just want to give you a few examples from the book. So again, it's sort of him trying to process this loss. And there were just a few things in there that's that struck me and so this kind of this is sort of an early part of the book where he's you know struggling with this loss and he talks about what chokes every prayer and every hope is the memory of all the prayers that we offered and all the false hopes that we had not hopes raised merely by our own wishful thinking hopes encouraged even forced upon us by false diagnoses by x-ray photos by strange remissions by one temporary recovery that might have ranked as a miracle and step by step, we were led up the garden path. And time after time, when he seemed most gracious, he was really preparing the next torture. So that any hope then becomes more painful, right? Because the fact that you held that in front of us and made us think that there was hope when there wasn't. And I love that honesty, right? That these things are making him 
more angry, right? These false hopes that you that you gave us. Another was that I okay. So this is again, like I said, this it's a very short book, but there's so much here that struck me. And so he asks, he says, can nonsense questions is is the the idea behind this? It says, can a mortal ask questions which God finds unanswerable? And he says, quite easily, I should think all nonsense questions are unanswerable. How many hours are there in a mile? Is yellow square or round? Probably half the questions we ask, half our great theological and metaphysical problems are like that. So the idea that we're asking questions that don't really have an answer is yellow square around. There's, well, it's not, it's neat. That's not the question, you know? Mm -hmm. So the idea that what we're asking and what we're, the questions that we're putting out into the universe aren't, they're nonsense. So we're not going to get an answer. If you're trying to get a, a definitive answer for all wonder, it's kind of the opposite of faith. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then the last thing was, he says, I've gradually been coming to feel that the door is no longer shut and bolted. Was it my own frantic need that slammed it in my face? You're like a drowning man who can't be helped because you clutch and you grab. Perhaps your own cries deafen you to the voice that you hope to hear. Knock and it shall be opened. But does knocking mean hammering and kicking the door like a maniac? And there's also, to him that hath shall be given. After all, you must have a capacity to receive or omnipotence can't give. Perhaps your own passion temporarily destroys the capacity. So he's, the idea that I'm pounding on the door, I'm begging, I'm trying to get answers, I'm trying to get help, but because I'm doing that, I can't hear your voice. And I can't take in, I can't take the help that you're trying to offer me. You know, like they sound like a drowning man is going to pull the other Mm -hmm. person down with them. And I thought that was kind of a neat analogy, too, to kind of think about grief in that sense when you're trying to find comfort and it's not coming to you, there might be a reason for that. And, but also if he's thinking of it in terms of um, himself and struggle, it's like he's, uh, the only way that you're going to get an answer is if you calm down, you know, but you can't calm down because your emotions have the best of you because you can't get the answer. So it's, you can't uh, think clearly. Yeah. 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 And that's part of it too. You're so you're grieving so hard that you can't think clearly. You can't take anything in. You can't take help. I and I get like I said, there's just these snippets in there that are like, oh, that makes that makes sense. That that makes sense of, of this situation. I think too I, this reminded me a little bit of this book that I read. I it's called Our Lady of the Lost and Found. And it's it's fiction, but it's about this woman who one day she wakes up in the Virgin Mary standing in her living room. And Mary says to her, listen, I need a break. I'm going to hang out here for a little bit. And then I have to, May is coming up. I'm going to have a big month. But I, you can't tell anyone I'm here. But I'm just going to hang out and I'm just going to. And so while Mary's there, Mary like helps her do her laundry. Mary cleans the house. And she starts to research Mary. Every story possible about Mary. Any sighting, any report. And so a lot of the book is all these sightings of Mary. Mm-hmm. And all these visions and all. And it, so it's 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 interesting because it gets, you know, those stories over and over again. But it's also this woman trying to make sense of her own faith. And she felt, you know, she's kind of pulled away from God and she's isn't as close. And she's like, she one night she's laying in bed and she's like, is is me questioning praying? Like, what's praying? Is the fact that I'm here saying, I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to pray. I is that praying? Like, can that be considered prayer? And it's sort of this realization that, yeah, it can be that. Me saying I'm scared or I don't get this or I don't know if I believe in you is is a dialogue. 
And that's what prayer can be. And it doesn't have to be sitting and saying a rosary. It doesn't have to be. And so there were just. It's almost like you're changing categories, though. It's yeah. like you're switching. It's You're switching from, like, if you're praying, we, we, most don't consider praying um, an act that happens between um, two humans, two equals mm-hmm. up here that you have these, you know, you can ask questions of a sister, mm-hmm. a parent, a friend, the, the tone of the conversation, you can, you can get to some answers, right? Yeah. That, but that's not how we think of our relationship typically with Mary. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's not how we think of our conversation or a typical yeah. conversation. Yeah. Well, you know, if Jesus was sitting down here at the bar with me uh, <laughs> you know, this, this evening, I think this is what I would ask. Most, we don't put it in that context. It feels like it's, it's, uh, it's not right mm-hmm. to do that. Yeah. You know? It's an elevated. Right. And the fact that because it's informal, because it's casual, that somehow it's not the way you're supposed to do it, that there's a certain way to do this, that there's a certain way to approach this, and that you kind of have to let go of that and stop banging on the door, right? Stop flailing and just sort of kind of stop and go, okay, here's where I'm at. Here's what, you know, and whatever that is, whatever you believe in, whatever you're, but to take that time to to sit and think your own thoughts and, and question and, and, and process that, that's that's wor- that's a worthy endeavor, I think, to take that time to really stop and go, where am I at? What do I believe? What do I think? What am I feeling? And and express that. And, and, and you know, yeah, you're going to ask for help or you're going to, you know, express gratitude, all of those things. But the questioning can be part of that, too. I think this we we're going uh, somewhat circular back to Lewis's approach to religion mm-hmm. after we finding religion once again, looking at it and accepting it, but in a little bit different terms than I'm sure it was presented to him as a kid, presenting it back in a much more manageable, much more accepting. And what was the expression we used? He he really believes in, he he believes very much in the stories and the message, Mm -hmm. but may not believe in things to the, to the T may not believe in word, word for word of each text. Right. So so this experience that he has definitely can, if you read this book and you go through it, if you've had any loss or a personal crisis or a divorce, a separation, loss of employment, tussles with rebellious offspring, moral failure, challenges, confrontation with natural man-made disasters, depression, as well as bereavement, in short, grief can be useful as a host of in different situations and any time when God is silent and the wind is shrill. And I, I love that idea that if when you feel that God's silent, you know, and he kind of processes that, why am I not hearing it? Why am I not feeling comfort? Why am I not? And, you know, he kind of, he goes through that, right? He's observing his grief. And I think too, especially at a time where we are struggling with loss, right? There's so much loss right now, loss of, of time with family, loss of loss of family, loss of time with friends, our children's, their losses, financial you know, there's stages of grief to our to our quarantine, to our COVID experience. There's there's stages that we're going to go through, and recognizing loss, that loss of hope. You yeah. know, watching it's a tough thing to see people who are you know, losing some of their ambitions and 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 accepting a fate because you know time has been stolen off of schedules and mm-hmm. calendars and sports and college mm-hmm. dreams and things like that we're seeing a lot of that and the 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 hope is that it's it's temporary 
like when I see some of the negativity and the sadness and, uh, you know, I, I, I see high school and college age students on a, on a very regular basis. And it's very, very difficult to see, to see that when they're challenged with something, many of whom it's, it may be the first very, very serious um, episode that they've had to go through. They may not have experienced a loss of a family member or a loss of someone close to them, or, you know, thankfully haven't experienced other types of tragedy up to this point. But the loss of some of the, the hope and the dream of what this year was supposed to look like or what a couple months from now is supposed to be, it's sad, but it does really lend itself back to faith and trying to accept something that you can't necessarily explain away right now. You know, right. it's why did it happen to you? We can't, you know, it stinks, mm-hmm. but it's, it's happened. Yeah. And it's not going to be the first time in your life or the only mm-hmm. time in your life that this is that you're going to have an extreme situation that you're going to need to know how to handle. This is extreme for sure. You know, we know that. And I, I can imagine too, for a lot of your probably, you know, on kids who you're dealing with in regards to swimming, you know, seniors who you're saying who had scholarship plans or who had, it's like what I was told if I did this and if I worked hard and if I, yeah. that I would get this scholarship or that I would that have this opportunity and it's, and then that yeah. may not happen. We saw kids start our program at eight years old and thought that they were and were supposed to be in Omaha at, at Olympic trials. Um, you saw someone who people who totally committed to a process yeah. for, for a career's worth, a lifetime's worth of process and got to the doorway of the biggest, the next one is the biggest one. You know, they made it all the way through the stages and then, oh, not, not happening, <laughs> you know, so yeah, but but that's one of millions of different avenues of people who have been in similar situations. You know, I mean, it's it's everything. It's it's artists who are on the verge of releasing, uh, you know, their first record. Mm-hmm. It's people who had marriages that didn't take place because of where they were headed, or you know, ceremonies, obviously. But but and it doesn't mean that it can't be done. But a lot of opportunities to walk across stages and to be in the room with a newborn or to say goodbye to someone who's, who's going, who's, who's leaving us Mm -hmm. for good. You know, it's, um, everyone's wearing a little something different than, than they were last year at this time. Yeah. I'll tell you one of the things you mentioned swimming. So I'm going to use this, tell this one short story about the, um, when we were finally able to get back to the pool and we were able to be out be back in practice in very small groups and it was a great feeling for the coaches and it was great for the kids but our first group that came to us was a real young group of eight and unders and for many of them it was the first time that they were masked up because they left school they weren't back in school it was now the summer many of them were still pretty much if they weren't going to church or they weren't going to the store with their parents and they weren't really gathering. This was the first time that they were required in many cases. And to see how big the eyes were nervous first walking up into that line, that was something that I'll, I'll take with me. But also the appreciation part of it is where, like literally where would I rather be sometimes on a Saturday morning when it's first kicking off and it's early and you had to go to bed early and all that kind of stuff. But when you see everyone come in and they're getting back to what they're doing, it's like, nope. 
like I still still want to do it and okay. this is that's important that's an important great. realization you know, you hear right? those and sounds uh, you know yeah. sounds of how the water's moving and how hands are pulling water and yeah. you know well, like you were saying, like you want a break. You're like, yeah, I, I wish I could sleep in on a Saturday. Mm -hmm. But then when you realize, hey, I, I miss this. I'd rather be here. I think that's a great that's a great thing to take from it. Yeah. So Lewis's relationship with Joy has been depicted in Shadowlands. I don't know if you ever saw that movie. Um, it actually was a play. And then it was two different films. But the film version from 1993 had Anthony Hopkins and Deborah Winger. And Deborah Anthony Hopkins was Lewis and Deborah Winger was Joy. And she was actually nominated for an Academy Award for her performance in that. And that was that was actually a good movie. Um, but again, it, it just it was that little tiny peek into their relationship. That's what most people knew. They didn't know anything about her before that. It was just like mm -hmm. this kind of quirky guy and this young woman. And you didn't really get the full picture of who she was. So was after realized. Yeah. <laughs> well, and after um, Joy's death, Douglas Gresham says that Lewis was never truly happy. He said, many have said that he was happy at Cambridge after Joy's death, but he says, I disagree. He's like, as a boy, I would see things that other people did not. How Jack would sag against the door after his friends departed after dinner of wit and conversation. How he would hide his despondency even from his brother, who was slowly losing his battle against alcoholism. And then Douglas says, he, he has read much about those who say they knew Jack well, but that many of them did not fully realize that after Joy's death, he held everyone at a distance. He suffered tremendously in those last three years of his life, and he goes, I regret that I didn't do more for him or that I couldn't do more for him in the last year and when his health was declining and he desperately worried about his brother's drinking, which was flaring up because of his concern over his, other, his brother's health. So 1963, he resigns from Cambridge after he had heart trouble. Like during the summer, he says, my life has undergone a great change. I nearly died in July. and I now have resigned all appointments and live on one floor of this house as an invalid. So this is th just three years after she died. He just went. Yeah. Broken heart, I believe. So he actually died at the kilns a week before his 65th birthday on Friday, November 22nd, which was actually the same day that John F. Kennedy was shot. So his grave is in the yard of Holy Trinity Church in Oxford. And his brother then died in 1973. And their names are on a single headstone that says, men must endure their going hence. And actually, Warney had written in his diary that there was a Shakespearean calendar that was hanging on their wall in their in their room. And when our mom died, our father preserved that leaf of the calendar for the rest of his life. And that had the quotation on it that men must endure their going hence. So he said, that's what we put Juan on our tombstone. So at this time, so Douglas, his stepson, he's 18 at this point. So he's basically orphaned. His mother's gone stepfather's gone and his father had killed himself the year before he his father had been diagnosed with cancer and, and committed suicide so just before jack died token came up to him at the hospital and he said you may not remember me but i just want you to know that if if you don't have anywhere to go you can come and live with me we'll take you in and he actually ends up living with a friend of his mom's and he gets married he has children he lives all around the world i think he was in australia maybe for a while and so now he his big project is C.S. Lewis's estate and managing that in Narnia Films and other projects. But he said, you know, I, I've had a kind of a weird life. He said, but it's been enjoyable and there's been great sadness and great difficulties, but I've loved every minute of it. And that's nice, too, to hear a child talking about, you know, usually you're waiting for something horrific or abusive or to have yeah. him say, no, this was it was good. 
so basically what's his legacy so the chronicles of narnia for sure so that had a few different you mentioned the cartoon version that was in 79 89 there was a film series and then 2005 was the big screen adaption with tilda swinton and Mm -hmm. liam neeson's voice for aslan and then there's two more that were brought prince of caspian Voyage of the Dawn Treaders. And then they said they're working on one in 2018. They were working on one, The Silver Chair. And they said they were going to start filming it in 2018. So I'm not sure where that is now. Mm. There's also the C.S. Lewis Foundation dedicated to advancing the renewal of Christian thought and creative expression. And they have lots of events. They have seminars at his home and retreats around the country. And then you can also go visit his home at the Kilns. You can go and study there, so you can be a scholar in residence. So you can, they have research, graduate level coursework to study or take a sabbatical. You can spend a day there. You could spend a year there. So it's all mixed up, but it's it's available for people to to apply for that. And then Taylor University in Indiana has opened the center for the study of C.S. Lewis and Friends. And then there's also there's a statue of C.S. Lewis in Northern Ireland of him opening a wardrobe. Oh, and, that's neat. Yeah, yeah, it's a really cool statue. Yeah, so basically C.S. Lewis was a writer whose gifts gave his books an enduring appeal, unforgettable characters, places, and prose that stir the imagination and heart. The world of Narnia is one of which, to which readers return again and again. It evokes a magic all its own. Lewis's legacy endures and will endure so long as stories can capture the imagination of the readers. Oh, so that's, that's C.S. Lewis. You know, what's funny is that like straight out of the gates, I, I had no idea. I, I knew him as a British author, not someone born in Belfast. Yeah. Like, right out of the gates. It yeah. was like, oh, this wow. I didn't know that, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And part, you know, part of it, too, is that I didn't I mean, yes, it's it's a depressing story. But at the same time, I liked him as a person. I really liked him as a person. I kept getting mm-hmm. nervous, like, I'm going to find out something. I'm going to hate him. Yeah. And the more I dug, the more I was like, oh, I really like him a lot. I was thinking very much of the like now, like as like I'll cont- like what I like about this is I'm going to walk away from this and I'm going to learn I'm, I'm as much as I learned tonight. I'm going to know like 10 times as much about him. Not too long from now, because yeah. I'm going to go into some of the sources. I'm yeah. going to read some of this stuff. You know, like I said, it was it's 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 interesting how he came up at different times of my years as a student. Mm-hmm. You know, as like we said, the earliest days of of the religious imagery, and then the introduction to the Narnia tales, mm-hmm. learning in lit classes about the Inklings mm-hmm. and about the relationships with with uh, Tolkien and sort of the the approach of them coming to it as uh, writers and and edit like editorial help and mm-hmm. you know kind of like a writing club so to speak at the pub I think it's pretty neat the the different ways that he presented himself through writing and speaking and then also the different ways that his works, have shown up along my own studies. So that's good. So that makes me feel good that I picked the right topic. <laughs> yeah, for sure. This was really learned a lot. So did you read Lord of the Rings? Did you read those books? As a kid, yeah. Did I you? read Lord okay. of the Rings. I read, um, I was actually know way more about Tolkien than I okay. do. Than, um, uh, well, at least way more hands-on yeah. knowledge. You know, I, I, I did a lot of, I did some studies of Tolkien in like, 
and it was in a medieval class and it was basically studying the language mm -hmm. that how he created language yeah. which is why when you brought up Norse mythology mm -hmm. and um, I remembered Odin and now I remember like Loki and okay. like some of those other you know, I think that's Marvel I think that's Marvel yeah, it's Marvel comics <laughs> um, but um but yeah, the same thing, uh, same thing. Yeah, the 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 absolute insane detail and years of research that he spent for what would become several sentences of elvish language mm -hmm. because he didn't want to just create it like out of thin air because right. that's not Make real. He wanted yeah. it to he had to have charts and he had to have a sound key he had to be able to put these like what do you call it like etymology like the he had to be able to strand all these things together yeah. based off of what he truly learned yeah and that there was it was evidence-based in order to create an elvish language out of dead languages and like that takes a special kind of friend <laughs> so when you think of C.S. Lewis and we're talking about all these different things and oh my gosh, like he wore so many different hats. They had to, I mean, yeah. like they had to find someone like that. They had to find someone who could listen to a score of music and play it perfectly. Mm -hmm. Like that's, they don't think like the rest of, of, of society. There's a reason yeah. why those people are together. Yeah. So. The kindred spirits for sure. I think that's and they need to be they need to be satisfied on a lot of different levels mentally. It can't just be politics, it can't just right. be religion, it can't just be what books did you read, but mm -hmm. they need to be challenged on a lot of different things. And well, Jim, thank you again for doing this. I know it's been a long a I, long um, session, but I Yeah, I, I loved I, it. And I appreciate uh thanks for thanks for considering me. This was an honor. Uh, well, thank you. And thank you guys for listening. Remember, if you want more drama, go to our website where we have links to the things we talk about in our episodes, thesodramaticpodcast.com. And please rate, subscribe, and review our episodes on iTunes and Spotify. And remember, it's okay to be so dramatic. Oh,